The first reading today is from Matthew, chapter 28, verses 16 to 20. Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, to the very end of the age. And the second reading, Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 11. In my former book, Theopolis, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. There's a beautiful prayer on page one. It's the collect that's set for uh, oh, kids, kids, youth kids. Have fun. Uh, there's a collect set uh, for the uh, Sunday after Ascension. There is only one Sunday after Ascension. Someone made that mistake. There's a collect that's set in the prayer book for the, for the Sunday after Ascension, and it's on page one of your... Uh, orders of service. So I'm going to pray this prayer and then we're going to begin to explore Acts chapter 1 together. It goes like this. O God, the King of glory, who hast exalted thine only Son, Jesus Christ, with great triumph unto thy kingdom in heaven, we beseech thee, leave us not comfortless, but send to us thine Holy Ghost to comfort us and to exalt us unto the same place whither our Saviour Christ has gone before, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Ghost, 
one God, world without end. Father, we have one in heaven who loves us. His name is the Messiah, King Jesus. He rules, he intercedes, and he will restore all things to their right place. So taking great comfort and joy in these truths this morning, we pray that you would also challenge us by your spirit to yield to Christ our King, in whose name we pray. Amen. So we take a break from James. We'll come back to it. Three-week series following the liturgical calendar or the church calendar, and the series is called This Is Our God. Today is the Sunday after Ascension, and we're going to say there is a king who has ascended. Next week is Pentecost Sunday, where we'll say that king is present now because his spirit has descended on us. And on June 16, which is Trinity Sunday, that king is at work in our world and in human hearts. We'll explore the Trinity together. There is a king, he's present, and he's at work. Now, if none of that means anything to you, then hold on, because it should, hopefully, in a few moments' time. But this morning, we're looking at the authority of Jesus, what it means, and we're going to apply it to our lives. As you know, unless you've just flown into the country, as most of you know, we've just come through an election in the last two weeks. And whether you like the outcome or not, we are thankful that our leaders aren't despots on the whole. They are subject, of course, to the will of the people through elections. And a leader, for example, can be chastened by an election and you could vote one out, a government out, in three years' time. That appears to be, to me, to be the best way to do government in our fallen world. But as you know, this is not always the case in our world today, and it certainly hasn't always been the case in parts of the world. In other parts of the world, who rules is a matter of life and death, your life and death. The possibility about whether your children will be taken away and murdered. It's about, in many ways, living or dying. It's about the freedom of a people or it's a, her, her oppression, the oppression of a people. Who ascends to power, if I can use that way in Australia, is significant, don't get me wrong. But not sort of like it is in other parts of the world today and throughout history. If we were living in a different age or a different place, we may have full fear on the ascendancy of any particular ruler. For example, if you were living in Israel in the first century, then you were living in Roman-occupied country. So by and large, you were living in constant fear of your life, always looking over your shoulder, careful about all your moves, even what you say to family members. I mean, look what happened to John the Baptist. Got his head lobbed off just for talking about divorce to Herod. If you were living in the first century, you worried about King Herod in Jerusalem. You worried about Caesar in Rome. You worried about Pilate, his representative. And if you believed there was no God, no stronger power than those rulers to save you, then I dare say your fear is appropriate. You should have fear. To say you shouldn't have fear is just wishful thinking. You're right to live in fear if they're the only power. You're blind if you don't live in fear. But what would life be like if that fear was taken away by good news, not just wishful thinking? What would living be like if you knew that Caesar was not Lord? What would be different if you truly believed a gospel, 
good news that the bully is not king, but that God has made good King Jesus ruler over all, currently, alive. That's what the ascension of Jesus Christ is all about. And it produced a fearlessly loving people. And it produced a people willing to obey the king with profound and substantial hope that meant that they could face death and still live. At the very end of the Gospels, we find the disciples are baffled. Uh, and you might be baffled as you come to church. They'd spent time with Jesus. Um, they saw his life. Uh, he'd been so good with people. They'd been listening to Jesus, and he told them the truth about God, that obeyed Jesus. He told them to repent. They watched him die, um, and that was disappointing because, you know, they had hopes that he was the Messiah, the King. Um, you know, and you don't die and remain king. But they'd also then witnessed Jesus come back to life, and they were even more baffled by this. I mean, they were overjoyed, but baffled at the same time. And so we find them waiting because they're trying to work out what next? What does this mean? And the answer is, Jesus is now the true king. He has ascended the throne of the universe and is now ruling to be worshipped all over the world. And that means that Caesar is not the ultimate ruler and neither is Herod. No prime minister, president or despot is in fact the ruler of this world or any part of it. It means that your boss is not Lord, nor the yard bully, nor the underground crime boss. And dare I say, neither are cultural movements Lord. No, they're not. And of course, this is at the heart of the good news, that the one who loved us, even unto death, that one, who defeated death by rising from the dead, that one has now ascended to the throne and is seated far above all rule and authority. Jesus said it, all authority, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. He said that. And that surely changes everything. Let me take apart Acts chapter 1 verses 1 to 11 briefly and then explore some implications of the ascension. Acts chapter 1 verse 1 is on page... Six outlines on page seven. Acts chapter one, verse one. In my former book, Theophilus, what was the former book? Who is Theophilus? In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. Oh, he's got more? I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, who's writing this? Luke is writing this. His first book is Luke's Gospel. Acts is his second book. Theophilus is a name, capital T. It could be a single person, the recipient of, of Acts, but the word theo, Theophilus means theo, lover, philo, sorry, theo, God, philo, Lover could mean lover of God or friend of God. So Acts, in fact, could be written by Luke to lovers of God everywhere. Is that you? Is this book for you? 
Luke's gospel could be called what Jesus began to do and teach, and Acts could be called what Jesus did after. The implication, of course, being that there is more, and that's what Acts is all about. Luke's gospel ends this way, Jesus raised from the dead and the disciples instructed to wait and stay in Jerusalem to find out what's next. In verses 3 and 4, we're told that Jesus presented himself to them, gave many convincing proofs that he was alive, and he spoke about the kingdom of God for 40 days. As Jenny said, as we began the service, Ascension Day is 40 days after Easter Day. By the way, if they hallucinated, then that's a long hallucination, a corporate hallucination. Jesus, verse 3, spoke about the kingdom of God, meaning, kingdom of God meaning all the good things that God had promised through the Jewish scriptures, through the Old Testament. The hope that's built into the Jewish scriptures through the promises to Abraham and others. They hope for God's blessings to come, the joy of knowing him personally of the, the, the gaining of peace in the world, shalom throughout the whole world, the restoration of justice, the resurrection of the people of God and the pouring out of the Spirit of God and the day when God's King would come to rule with truth and grace, not like the kings of old, but a forever King. Jewish people had longed for a Messiah to bring all of this. Some still do. I do. I've, I, rather, I already know him, Jesus Christ. Jesus, of course, achieved much of this by dying. Uh, that's amazing. That means my sins are forgiven. And he achieved hope now and beyond death by his resurrection from the dead. But a couple of things remain to happen. First, Jesus has to ascend to a throne. There has to be a king in this kingdom, a lord over all. Second, he has to pour out his spirit. That king has to be present with his people, not absent, empowering them to obey him. Fruit of the spirit, the power to witness to him. And third, and yet to come, that king has to restore that kingdom to bring shalom in the earth. That's what they're expecting through the Old Testament, let alone the words of Jesus. They want Caesar overthrown and Herod's rule deposed, and that's why in verse 6 they say, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? That's what they're hungry for. You're going to boot out the bad lot? And he said to them, Jesus said to them, the risen Jesus said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, the full restoration of the kingdom of God is yet to happen, which means that there'll be oppression, there'll be suffering, God's people will still, but they'll have his spirit, right? Because Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne. That's what the book of Revelation is about. The book of Revelation is how do you suffer and know that Christ is Lord and continue believing his Lord and stay faithful to the end? Of course, the times and the dates the Father has set by his own authority is the Father's business, but in the meantime, you are to be my witnesses, verse 8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, that's next week, and you will be my witnesses, witnesses in Jerusalem and then in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And guess where you sit this morning? Actually, New Zealand's the ends of the earth close. 
the buzz from the power of the Spirit is not to buzz you, not primarily. The power of the Spirit is not to sort of prove God's existence to a skeptical audience. The power of the Spirit is not just to make you feel better. The power of the Spirit is power to proclaim Christ as risen from the dead and king over all, the power to be a witness to his love and the hope that you have in him, the power to live as a witness to the king. And after this, we're told, verse 9, he was taken up before their very eyes and taken up, and a cloud hid him from their sight. The idea of the ascension is from the old ascension is from the Old Testament and from kings in the ancient Near Eastern world. They literally ascended to a throne. They walked up stairs to a throne that sat on the top top of the stairs. That's exactly what happened when the Queen ascended the throne in 1953. Someone correct me later. I've watched the Crown. She walked upstairs. She ascended to the throne. And the idea here in Acts is this is true for Jesus, but it's not a couple of steps to the throne of, uh, of the United Kingdom. It's ascending to the Father's side as King and ruler and Lord over all. Abraham Kuyper got it right when he said, Oh, there is not a square inch of the whole domain of our human experience over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, Mine. It's all his. And this is king language, Christ who is sovereign over all. Christ means Messiah, means king, and this is our God. Well, what will it mean? Are you puzzled? (laughs) Um, Well, if you're puzzled by all this, then you're in good company. The apostles were puzzled by it, and they spent the New Testament trying to figure out what it meant. Churches did that. But they were empowered, more on this next week, by the Spirit, and they spend a whole life working out the implications of Christ being Lord over all. And I want to ask you, what's on for you this week? Because there's not a square inch of the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine, it's all his. What's on for you this week? A job interview? A tough decision? A difficult relationship? Or how about this? Normal, mundane living and life. Getting up, making lunch. Where are you going to have, have a dinner? Who are you going to eat with? What are you going to say? It will mean at least six things as you go about your lives. And these are on page seven of your order of service. It will mean, if Christ is Lord ascended, it will mean we will worship him wholeheartedly. Jesus Christ is King not Caesar, that he lords over, over us, and not even a prime minister that we hold him to account, you see. He's God's king whom we worship. Read the book of Revelation, the early chapters. And that means that all other loves, all other fears, all other objects and people that we chase after and thirst after and long after, all those people we hope in and things we believe in and things we want so desperately and effectively worship because they rule our hearts and shape our lives. The thing that in the end you'd say, you know, I'd die for you, you know, I have to have you. The ascension of Jesus Christ says to you and to me, these are not gods, you can hold them loosely. If they're not given to you, you're going to be okay. If they're taken from you, you'll still live. We worship Jesus Christ. 
who was and is and is to come. The one who loves us, died for us, and frees us from our sins. We worship him with all our hearts. And secondly, we submit fully. This is the hard one. This is the challenge. Jesus Christ is king. He's not merely a friend whom we confide, although he certainly is that. Jesus says, I now call you my friends. And he's not our psychologist, that he may simply comfort us, although he certainly does. But here, Jesus is depicted as a king to whom we submit, we yield. We find out what he wants, and we say, thy will be done, not my will be done. A king in ancient times expected people to yield to him, to submit to him. He ascended to the throne, sort of gave gifts to buy the wills of the people and expected homage in return, submission. But we know that most of those kings became king out of might and continued to rule by the sword, destroying their enemies and anyone who opposed them. But Jesus became king by giving up his life, by dying. This is our God. This is our king. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That makes him worth submitting to in every area of your life. He wants your heart. And he's the kind of king you can submit to, right? You sit there and you go, this part about Jesus' teaching in the New Testament, I don't like. But you go, actually, am I willing to yield and take that on board, despite the fact that everybody doesn't want me to believe it, and I don't really want to do it? You say, well, is he the kind of king I can submit to? And the answer is yes. Attributed to Napoleon are these words. I tell you, Napoleon Bonaparte, as opposed to dynamite. Attributed to Napoleon are these words. I will tell you, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself have founded great empires. But our empires are founded on force. Jesus alone founded his empire on love, and to this day, millions would die for him. You think about that. He goes on, Christ alone, across the chasm of 18 centuries, makes a demand which is beyond all others difficult to satisfy. He asks more than a father can demand his child, or a bride of her spouse, or a man of his brother. What does he demand? He asks for the human heart. He will have it entirely to himself. We submit fully. Third, we live boldly, without fear. That's the implication of the ascension. And to the extent that we do have these fears of people in the world, it's to the extent that we haven't pressed in enough on the fact that Jesus Christ truly is Lord. If Jesus Christ is ruling the world, then that means that Caesar isn't, the bloodthirsty tyrants aren't, and the bullies will be held to account. How do you think the disciples lived and proclaimed the kingship without fear? How did they die so? Look how they died. How did Christianity spread so quickly? Well, they had a fear that took away all other fears. They feared God, not Caesar. They feared Jesus, not the whims of their own desires. They took on the one fear, fear of God, that removes all other fears. Perfect love drives out fear. They feared God, by which all other fears are moderated and put it in their place. You got a fear? This is, of course, why Jesus said, um, 
All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We need to be on mission and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. We need a brand new culture of fearless witness in whatever giftings you have. I don't know what you want to say about the Israel Falau fiasco, and that's what it is. Whatever else you want to say about it, you know, about employment contracts, and I'm not a lawyer, so I don't fully understand that, and I'll leave that to those who do know. Whatever else you want to say about the nuances of the text in the Bible, and there's certainly things to say about that. For example, 1 Corinthians 6 is written to Christians who have already repented. Whatever else you want to say about sensitivity, should you use memes to say these things, especially when there are people who feel sensitive and oppressed. Whatever else you want to say about Israel Falau, he appears unafraid of the powers that be. And I'm willing to bend for $4 million. What would you bend for $4 million? Matthew chapter 10, do not be afraid of those who kill the body or take an income, but cannot kill a soul. Don't be afraid of them. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy soul and body in hell. Trust God. Trust Jesus Christ. Romans 8, Paul says, What then shall we say in response to all these things? If God is for us, who really can be against us? Your work colleagues? Rugby Australia? Qantas? Matthew 28, And surely I am with you always to the end of the age. Live boldly, but live wisely and gently. Don't get me wrong. Fourth, take heart, for we have one in heaven who pleads for us. Take heart. Jesus is our high priest, even in the suffering. Hebrews 4, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, the King, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. You think, oh, God doesn't understand me. Yes, he does. We have one who has been tempted or tested in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. And if this be true, and it is, let us then approach the throne of grace, right? Walk up to the throne that he's ascended, but let's do it with confidence. Take heart, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. In our time of need. Take heart. In our time of need, you are not alone. In that testing to come, and it'll come. You are not alone. Bring your pains to him. Bring your sins to him. Pray to him. Take heart. And live subversely. Fifth, live subversely. If Jesus Christ is king, then we live different than the cultural narrative of our day. You see how it works? Caesar basically determines the cultural narrative of his day, or at least attempts to, does so with the sword. So you do what you need to do to please him. There were loads of people who in the, new, in, in the first century just said to Christians, just sign the document. Just sign it. I mean, it doesn't matter. Just say that Caesar is Lord. And, and you know, you don't have to believe in it. Just close your eyes and sign it. They didn't sign it. And their children were taken away. Their wives, they were taken away. And he wins the day by sort of bulldozing, 
<laughs> so if Caesar is Lord, avoid the confrontations. It's the way of Rome. Do it. If there is no God, then you will live out of some narrative. Either it will be perhaps a parent's narrative, which may or may not be a good one. More likely, it'll be the Aussie way, which is live hard, work hard, get a comfortable life and get ahead. Try to be good to some people along the way. But if Jesus Christ is Lord, then you subvert the narrative of the culture. You care for the poor in extraordinary ways. You open your heart in love to others. You criticize less. You live out of selflessness. You subvert the selfless life. And fourth and finally, you find hope. Please remember this as you take the bread and the wine in a few moments' time. In the Nicene Creed, we said it a moment ago, for our sake he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. We believe that. On the third day he rose again in accordance with the Scriptures. Scriptures said it would always happen. He ascended into heaven and ascended to the right hand of the Father and he will come again in glory to judge both the living and the dead and his kingdom will have no end. This one, this king, will return to judge. He will come to save those who trust him. He will vindicate your faith and restore the world and put it to rights. Everything will be the way it is meant to be and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Dr. John Dixon from the Centre for Public Christianity here in Sydney said this, he said, anyone who's ever wished for the world to become a better place has in some sense wished for the kingdom of God. And anyone who's wished for the kingdom has in some sense longed for the king. This morning, we yield to him. Let's pray.